This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Chapter 28, beginning in verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to the sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul and made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say... You will, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. I I, I look at that and and I'm excited about where we're heading next week. Next Sunday, we're going to be starting a a series in the book of Isaiah. It's only going to last through Easter, so we're not hitting every single chapter and verse, but we will go systematically through that as we look at the passages from the Old Testament prophet. And that passage I just read is likely going to come back here in a few weeks for us. But uh, it, it, it is important to think about that which Paul is referencing and what God has given him here. We are in the final two chapters of the book of Acts. It has only taken 79 sermons to get that far. Not bad for me. So these final two chapters, chapter 27 and 28, focusing on this story, uh, these last two chapters are a wild ride. What you have here is the Apostle Paul. If you've not been with us, we've been journeying with him at least the last portion of the book of Acts once he is introduced there as the church has been launched. Paul has been arrested. He has been arrested in Jerusalem for a crime that was not a crime. The the Jewish people there did not want him there. He was there for a festival. They accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple area. They went to the Roman uh, leadership there who said, well, we'll just whip him up a little bit and send him back to you. And then Paul says, but I'm a Roman citizen. And all of a sudden that changes all the rules because you're not allowed to do that. And so Paul finds himself whisked away with people trying to kill him along the way into the city of Caesarea Maritima, which is a city on the Mediterranean Sea. I know this isn't exciting for a lot of you, but here's the journey. He is in Caesarea. He's there for a couple of years. He's talking to the Roman governor, Felix and Festus. And eventually, as we get to chapter 27, after the Christ himself has appeared to Paul and has told him prior to this that you will end up in Rome, and so we're just kind of waiting for that to happen. Well, it's about to happen. These final two chapters show us where Paul appealing to Rome and to the Roman governor and eventually uh, is on a ship. Making, its, making his way from Caesarea, that's that maritime port off the Mediterranean Sea, all the way over to Rome. The thing is, when you look at that on a map, it doesn't look very far. In fact, if you were flying, it wouldn't take very far at all, it wouldn't take very long at all. And if you were going on a ship today, it'd probably be not that big of a deal. However, this story starts unraveling, as you see Paul as a prisoner with other prisoners um, on this ship, 
and uh, things start happening. I mean, th- this is the kind of story that w- we, would l- we would say that this is an eventful cruise. Somewhere this is either going to remind you of the story of Jonah or of Gilligan, depending on your perspective. This, is, this ship is tossed, the storms are coming, there are, they, they are there upon them. There are over 200 men on this ship, and the ship is not only loaded with, with prisoners and soldiers, it's also loaded with grain. There are bags and bags or barrels and barrels of grain on there. So it's weighted down pretty heavily. And as the storm starts coming in and is keeping them from getting all the way to Rome, uh, they're recognizing that something tragic is going to happen. The captain of the ship is, is warning everybody that we're going to go down. And the ship is eventually sinking. It, it, it runs aground here. And as it is run aground and, the, and it's breaking up, and uh, they determine, let's sh- let, first thing they say before it gets that far is let's throw the grain overboard. So, you know, at least they a little bit pro-life there. So they throw the grain overboard. But then they're looking and they're going, we're still going down. And so the Roman soldiers on the ship have a plan, and their plan is to kill all the prisoners because what's worse for them, rather than, than, than just sinking and losing the prisoners, is allowing these prisoners of Rome or these, these criminals against the Roman Empire to go free. And so they're going to kill them all. However, there's a centurion on board who has befriended Paul. And he stops the killing of all the prisoners from happening, and lo and, lo and behold, the, everybody does survive. The ship is totally destroyed as it hits the rocks there, but all 200-plus men, including the prisoners, find themselves alive and well as they make their way onto the shore of the small island known as Malta. And Malta is there just south of, of Italy. You can look that one up as well if you care to. And then they find their way on the island of Malta. The Maltese people there greet them. They welcome them. And they're trying to make sure they're okay. And they, they make a fire for them. And here's what some kind of, uh, kind of a weird thing you find in the story. There's a, a fire to warm them up after they've been drenched, of course, in this storm. And uh, Paul is either, he's kind of, you know, adds some wood to the fire. And as he does so, a snake jumps out and attaches itself to Paul. So, you know, you think you're having a bad day right? <laughs> you know, he gets arrested, falsely accused, arrested. He's in, you know, in prison for two years in Caesarea, finally gets on a boat. Woo, we're making it to Rome. The prophecy or the promise of Jesus is coming true. And then on the way there, the storms are coming. I mean, it's like he's thinking, I've heard this story before. There's a fish somewhere out here. This is the Jonah story. But then they wreck, and he survives the wreck. And then he hears all the guards saying, we're going to kill him, but he survives that. And we're finally here. Let me just put another piece of wood on the fire. And a snake bites him. Now the Maltese people, as soon as they see that the snake is attached to him, they are immediately determined that he is an evil person, that the gods are against him. And so they're just watching him, already categorized him as a bad guy, but then they notice that his hand doesn't swell up, his arm doesn't swell up, he doesn't get sick, and all of a sudden, he's okay. So now they've shifted from he's an evil, evil man to he must be a god. And there's where Paul says, well, I'm not a god, but I know a god. In fact, I know the god. And all of a sudden, Paul has a little audience of a congregation to preach the gospel to. And guess which gospel he preached? The very same one he always preaches. Because the gospel didn't change. It contextualizes to the community and the language barriers and the culture you're in, but it never changes. It's always about Christ born, living a perfect life, Christ crucified, 
Christ, Christ buried, resurrected, and new life offered through him. That is the message of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. That's Paul's good story. He can't help but tell it. And I doubt that morning when Paul woke up after so much time and so many things going on, did he think, wow, I can't wait to, to preach this little message on the island of Malta. I'll have a captive audience. He had no idea. I mean, most services are pre-planned, pre-organized, pre-structured. And let me just tell you, Paul didn't have a nice little worship song to follow up with a sermon. He had a snake bite by a fire. But he definitely had their attention. Paul's consistency in sharing the truth is once again seen, but we remember this, that Paul, that God did not promise Paul he would go to Malta. So you kind of wonder, how can Paul be so confident? How can Paul be so strong in the midst of this difficulty? Because Paul, by his own admission and descriptions given throughout Scripture, is not a real muscular, strong guy. He's not actually the best public speaker ever. In fact, he is nothing to write home about. But... He is consistent in the message that he gives wherever he is. He may be a boring speaker. Remember the guy that fell asleep, fell out of the window, died during the middle of the sermon, right? Yeah, that doesn't go on your, uh, your, your, your Twitter bio, by the way. Um, but he never wavered on the message, whether he's preaching to the Maltese people by a fire on their island or he's preaching to the Jews in a synagogue, or he's preaching to, uh, the, at the Oropagus or at Mars Hill, or he's preaching to those that are so far from God they've never even heard of the Hebrew God, much less this Christ. He preaches the same consistent message. And Christ promised him he would end up in Rome. So, so in the midst of while the ship is going down, Paul has to have this thought in the back of his head, well, I'm not going to die because I know I end up in Rome. And here we are in, in Malta. Well, we're in Malta, but that's not where I'm headed. I'm going to end up in Rome. Um, a snake has bit me. Oh, my goodness, a snake bit me. But that's okay because I know I'm going to end up in Rome. Now, once he gets in Rome, he's realizing, wait a minute, all he said was I get to Rome. And we know how that ends. But he gets to Rome. In these closing paragraphs of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 27 and 28, we see a lot here, but some things to take note of today. First of all, we see the faithfulness of Paul. Paul was on a mission to tell everybody he came in contact with about Jesus Christ, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this. At no time throughout the book of Acts or in any of his letters did Paul initiate an evangelism program. I don't know if you caught that. There was never a gathering of Christian people then divided up to go door to door attempting to sell Christ like magazine subscriptions to people that aren't interested. That's what we do in American Christianity. We've turned evangelism into a program. Memorize these 10 verses, get these three circles, get those four spiritual laws, and now let's break up in teams of three and let's go attack the community. And we're gonna leave them a door flyer and a note on their door because that's evangelism in Western Christianity. We've turned evangelism into a lifestyle of gossiping the gospel into a program of memorization and tract distribution. Now, I'm not opposed to memorizing scripture or going through some kind of program because most people don't know how to talk about the, the gospel itself, which is, it just blows me away. We can talk about every single thing else on the planet, and we definitely have strong opinions about it, but when it comes to the most important thing in the world, we are silent because it's, quote, unquote, so awkward. We've made it awkward because we've turned evangelism into a marketing program with invite cards to some great bait-and-switch event the church is putting on, whether it's a car show or a concert or a craft show or some event with a little tagged-on sermon once we got you here. That's not the biblical model, but it's certainly the American church's model, and we've run it into the ground. 
It's amazing that in evangelical circles in the West, we have systematically turned evangelism into a marketing program, and we've even created this follow-up word called discipleship, which, by the way, isn't in Scripture, but the word discipleship is the follow-up program for the, or- the people that have already bought the product. Now we sell you the follow-up product. Now it's a six-week or 13-week course you go through until you die forever semester after semester after semester after semester fill in the blanks and do the course and watch the videos and that's discipleship but it's really not it's just the gathering of Christians teaching themselves what they already know again is it bad no in fact we actually do some of that here the problem is is when we slide into marketing 101 for Christianity and the Christian life and we think this is how it has to be You see, discipleship is not in the Bible. Making disciples is. Being a disciple is. But when discipleship becomes a secondary program for church folks who have already purchased the goods sold from the evangelistic sales pitch, I fear we've turned Christianity into little more than the latest trending product sales. Now listen, I'm a business major. That's what I went to college for. I get the business mindset. I worked in corporate America for just a little bit of time before I went into ministry. I was no, I'm no career person. I get that. But there's this concept of return on investment that tends to drive us. And sadly, rather than letting our Christianity infect our culture and our business strategies, we've just baptized business strategies and turned them into programs for the church. Having fun yet? Just making sure you're still with me. Let me check the YouTube, see if anybody's tuned us off yet. Go watch a cat video for a while. Come back. It'll be great. But that's what happens. Thus, faithful Christians in the West have struggled living missionally. Missionally, by the way, is another made-up word, but we we use it for this, this reason. To live missionally means to stop asking people to come to your church, but actually go be the church and go and join them where they are for the sake of the gospel. See, We struggle with living missionally, and we struggle to truly see the fruit of Christian labor because somewhere along the line, we have unintentionally focused on Christianity as labor rather than the full and abundant life promised by God himself. You know, I know it's work, but it's laborious, and when it's laborious, there's not a lot of joy in that. Paul was doing something that you may not have considered. He was gossiping. Everywhere he went, he gossiped. He gossiped the gospel. He couldn't help but talk about it. The gospel of Jesus Christ fell out of his mouth every time he opened it because he had nothing else of value to say that superseded that. He gossiped the gospel so often because he couldn't help it, whether in a synagogue or at Mars Hill or in a jail cell or even on a sinking ship or sitting by a fire with a dead snake hanging off his hand. He gossiped the gospel because he couldn't help but talk about Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. See, apparently that's what happens when you've been rescued from the miry clay and that eternity in hell and you keep that perspective and you don't don't get trapped in the machinery of church and you remember what it's all about. So when we read the last few chapters of Acts, we should be inspired and challenged by the faithfulness of Paul who is an imperfect human being. Just make sure you remember that. But a faithful man of God. But more than that, I mean, it just minimizes Paul to such a degree, we should be overly inspired by the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of our God. 
See, Paul gains an audience with some of the Jews in Rome. You see that here? We read that passage. Those Jews in Rome claim they had not heard of the controversy surrounding Paul and all of his claims about Christ, but they lied. They'd heard. We know that because they reference Christianity as a sect. And the word sect comes from the same root word as heresy. So they've already been talking about it. So to say we don't know anything about that controversy of the sect of Christianity, you have revealed yourself by explaining yourself in that way. But nonetheless, they do say something to Paul in this conversation which every Christian should long to hear from anyone that gives you an audience. Here's what they say. We want to hear more. We desire to hear. Now let me just tell you, that's a rare occasion. Most people you get the courage to talk about Jesus with will not respond with, will tell us more. But some will. None will if you never talk to them. But some will if you dare to. Most won't, but some will. When speaking to this audience, Paul references, as I said, the Old Testament uh, prophecy and the prophet Isaiah. Paul quotes Isaiah, and it is this passage that I just read that states the truth as it will be shared, will not be received very well. It's not the most encouraging passage. Last week, our missionary to Europe was with us. He is on furlough. He's in Texas this week. That's John Robinson. And some of you have had opportunity to meet with him and travel to our trips to Europe, uh, whether it be Wales or elsewhere. But John, I brought him to a church planters gathering uh, last Thursday. And, and uh, on the way there, I told him he was a keynote speaker. He didn't know that. So he was going to be the speaker. And it was really just about eight or 12 guys were sitting eating sandwiches and having a conversation. And, I, and, and John and I had been talking, and, and I, I asked him to share about what it's like to do ministry in a post-Christian culture because Europe and Wales is post-Christian, by their own definition, post-Christian. Post-Christian means been there, done that, don't need it anymore. That's post-Christian. Now, some Americans think they're living in a post-Christian culture, but John clarified that. He said, if you ever invite anybody to anything, anytime, at a church building, and they show up, if you invite them to come to a meeting where there's a free spaghetti dinner and they show up, a comedian, they'll show up. If you invite them to play on your church's softball team, that dated him, he hadn't been in the States for a long time, and they join the softball team and show up to church once every nine weeks because that's the rule, then you're not in a post-Christian culture because said in our culture, it doesn't matter how much they love you, like you, even if they vacation with you, they will not show up at your place. If anything's tied to it with Christianity, post-Christianity. So if you look at where Europe is regarding the church as a whole, and I know there's still some gospel preaching churches around, I'm talking about as a whole, culturally, right? Um, if you're taking a baseball diamond, first, second, third, and home, and Europe is all the way around the bases to home plate, which is post-Christianity, America's on third base right now. That, that's a reality. We're not post-Christian, but we're very close to it. And one of the reasons I think that America may be the third largest mission field in the world is because exactly what I said earlier, we sell Jesus like he's a commodity rather than a life-changing reality. And people, folks don't want to buy that junk anymore. Jesus' junk doesn't sell. The true Christ is what we must be sharing. And we've got to get to that point. Here's what I found interesting. He shared this with me. He went to the Isaiah passage. Now, you've got to remember John was in Wales. He said he was, in there for, he was there for a couple of years, serving as evangelism director, church engagement specialist with the International Mission Board. And he was very honest in this because he said everything he was trained to do and everything he grew up doing and every program he knew from EECWT, whatever evangelism strategy you may have here that we've used that works well, faith evangelism, whatever it might have been, none of it was working. In fact, everything he did, he said not only was it not very productive, it was actually counterproductive to the work of the church. 
And he said he was at his wit's end trying to figure out, oh, Lord, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? This is not what I thought it would be. They train us how to do Jesus stuff in the church, and now we're here to be missionaries to do Jesus stuff. But it's not working. And it wasn't like working, not working for like six weeks. I'm talking like three years. Zero. He said he went back to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, let me just tell you, Isaiah chapter 6 is the missions conference passage. Every missions conference in the history of evangelicalism has used this passage. Every sermon on you need to become a missionary has used this passage. Let me take you to it. You've heard it before. We sing about it. We have songs. People have banners with the words on it. But it's Isaiah 6, and we're going to talk about it again in a few weeks, but I'm going to give you a preview now. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's your Trinity statement if you're looking for one. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook as the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the, from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's strange and odd and weird, but how cool is that? Right? In our imagination, we try to picture what that looks like. But look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? There it is. There's the, this is the clarion call for Missions Conference 2022, 21, 20, every year since Jesus came. Right here it is. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. And at that point, that's where every mission sermon ends. Because that's, that's time for the invitation. Come on. Who will go? Here I am, send me. And more, we're excited. And we should be. It's right, it's good. I'm not saying it's wrong. But I am saying there are more verses in the chapter. But we stop there because that's the good sales point. That's the, do you, do you want to go and do what Jesus wants, serve him? Amen. Yeah, here I am. Yeah, send me, just like Isaiah. But, but here's what it says in the rest of the passage. I'll paraphrase. Isaiah says, God, I'm ready. To go to the people, where shall I go? Whom shall I talk to? And God says, well, you're going to go to a people. None of them are going to listen to you. They won't like you. They won't sit down with you. They don't want to hear a word you have to say, and that's how it's going to be forever. That's why it does, that rest of it doesn't show up on the missions T-shirts. Because that's the reality of the realities right upon us now. In our instant microwavable world, we want, here I am, send me, missionary on the field, millions get saved the first week, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and it can happen. But more often than not, you're going to a place that wasn't waiting for you. And for you, that could be uh, your spouse on the other side of the living room, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbor, your coworker. Here am I, send me. Where am I going, God? Well, you're going to go talk to people that won't listen to you. And you're going to go talk to people that don't want to listen to you. And you're going to go try to engage and love people that don't want anything to do with me. We still go. That's what hit me hard this past week. Will we go if the harvest is not immediate? Think about that. We know the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. We get that. That's a follow up passage as well we'll go to in our missions effort. But what if we go and the harvest isn't immediate? 
Will we share the gospel if the response is not positive? Will we be faithful for days, weeks, months, or even years if everything we're doing for the gospel is fruitless, at least seemingly? You see, Acts 28 is one of those chapters that just kind of ends. You ever been to a movie that ended and the credits start rolling and you're like, that's it? And then you're like, you're looking on IMDb or somewhere to say, did I miss a section? Did I, what happened? You, ever, you know, it's like they ran out of money and the movie's just, all right, credits roll. Stay for the mid-credits scene. Still didn't fix it. All right, we're done. Thank you for your money. Acts 28 ends. And it leaves you going, that's it? Why does it end like that? Because the purpose is... <laughs> that whatever Acts 29 is outside of a church planting organization is really you and me. Because it's not supposed to end, it's supposed to continue on and carry on with us. It ends, it ends open-ended if you want to say it that way. And Acts is more than a narrative of Paul because Paul's not even fully throughout the entire book and he just seems to show up midway and, and ride the rest of the story through with Luke. But the book of Acts is really about us, it's about the church. It's not the initiation of a program. There is no calling to create an evangelistic memory game so we can sell Jesus more better in this world today. You can quote that, more better. The word of God contains the greatest news in the history of the world. But catch this. Even distributing Bibles globally is not the mandate of the gospel. It's good, it's just not the mandate of the gospel. So church, so individual Christian, those watching online, what is your response to the call of God? Whom will I send and who will go if the harvest will not even show up in your generation? Would you still go? What if it's going to be two or three generations later, long after you're dead? Would you still be faithful now? Will you say yes to go, to share, to give, to live, to serve, to love, to let the gospel of the, the gossip of the gospel flow from your lips because you can't imagine not talking to others about Christ? Will you be obedient if the only thing you get, all that you get, all of it, if the only thing you get for your obedience, the only result of your faithfulness is not a name, no one's ever going to know you. You don't get a ministry and you don't get a ministry.org or .com. You're not a 501c3. You don't get a bigger Sunday school class or life group. You don't have a, the coolest care group in the, in the church. Maybe you don't get more followers online. You're not a celebrity preacher. That's not biblical, but we tend to make it so in our country. You don't even get immediate results. In fact, would you be obedient if people choose to ignore you even more now than before? Maybe not just ignore you, but blatantly reject you. Would you be obedient if they refused to even have dinner with you because of your claim to know Christ? Students, would you be faithful in your schools? If every time you ask somebody to join you at church or to a youth event or a student ministry activity, they definitely are definitely not coming, but they've also now labeled you as something you don't want to admit to your parents because it's hurtful, would you be willing to press on? If it's not cool, if they refuse to go to a Bible study or even to talk with you any further, if all you're going to talk about is Jesus, will you be obedient in a culture that is quickly diving in 
to post-Christianity here in the United States, knowing that it's happening, recognizing that on university campuses it is prominent and major, major mega cities, that's what the majority is. In fact, that's what's leading this, or those are the areas where it's mostly growing, but it's not, let me just go ahead and say, uh, it's infecting our sweet little suburban life and the rural communities as well. What's amazing is when you think post-Christianity, here, here's an eye-opener for you. Most of Europe, in their definition of being post-Christian, been there, done that, don't want it. Not only do they see Christianity as irrelevant and a waste of time and just a money-grubbing, stealing organization, they define it as immoral. And now we're just offended, oh my gosh. It's amazing that the lost world looks at Christianity and says, well, that's that group that picks different individuals on the planet to not like. And they're more bounded by their hate of someone rather than their love for the God they claim to serve. Now you're going, well, that's not who we are. I'm just saying perception is reality to some. That's what our missionaries are facing there. That's what your students are facing here. But would you be willing to be obedient in that regard even? Even so. Maybe it's this way. Are we willing to be faithful if the only thing we get out of this is not a bigger church with a prettier building and this, that, and the other, more friends, are we willing to be faithful to the message of the gospel if the only thing we get is Jesus? See, there was a time when that was enough. But the machinery of religion has made Jesus plus more common, Jesus plus popularity, Jesus plus political influence, Jesus plus friends, Jesus plus more money, Jesus plus fill in the blank. But, but, but are we willing to be faithful to the end if all you get is Jesus and no plus? Because I don't think Paul signed up for Jesus plus shipwrecks, Jesus plus snake bites, Jesus plus jail time, Jesus plus persecution, Jesus plus being killed. But Paul shows that Jesus is enough. And I long for that because I fear that maybe I'm not even there. I'm definitely not where I need to be. Our speech must be seasoned with the gossip of the gospel. We must be able to share about the joy and value of knowing Christ. Let me challenge you. We do it all the time, and I get it. People go, amen, somebody ought to tell other people about Jesus. I get that. That's kind of our evangelism strategy, that other people will do it for us. Nonetheless, what if we walked out of here today and said, you know what, I'm going to be obedient if all I get is Jesus. I'm going to let the gossip of the gospel just fall out of my mouth because I can't help but talk about him anymore. He's more important to me than my politics, my job, my, my, my family. Oh, my gosh, there we go. Anything. But here's something to test you on. What if in your gossiping the gospel and you're talking about Jesus, you, you can do it, but you're not allowed to do, talk about anything regarding heaven or eternity? Could you still do it? Think about it. Let that sink in for a moment. Can you talk about the value of knowing Jesus if you're not allowed to talk about going to heaven when you die? That tends to be the only marketing strategy we have for evangelism. Pray this prayer, join this church, and when you're dead, you get to go to heaven. But in between, it's going to be, well, you know, eh, eh. thoughts and prayers. Could you talk about Jesus if you couldn't talk about the sweet bye-bye? 
if Beulah Land's not allowed to be played in your head anymore, if none of those heaven stories can be shared. Now, I'm thinking heaven's important and real, but I'm also thinking there's something about full and abundant life here on earth that Christ has promised that's often ignored. It's often mutated into prosperity gospel garbage, but let's not talk about that. Because here's the conversation those that mean most to you need to hear. When you're gossiping the gospel and telling someone how important it is to know Jesus personally and follow him and surrender your life to him, what did he do for you yesterday that you could tell him? Why is he important today? Because if all you can tell him is, well, when I die, they're looking at you like, why every time I talk with you, we gotta talk about your funeral? Tell me why he's important now. Now. May we have the faithfulness of Paul, never shaken by our circumstances, willing to go through the challenges of life because the promises of God are more powerful and, tr and, and trusting him gives us the strength. How did Paul get through those last few chapters? Because God made him a promise. You're going to be in Rome. Okay, then I'm good. And God has made us very many promises as well. And we need to hold on to those promises and trust him when our faith wavers. Any Christians in the room? I'm just, don't raise your hand. I'm presuming all of you are here. Okay. Sorry. Any Christians in the room who have ever had your faith waver, a little bit of doubt seep in, a little bit of, is this worth it? Okay. Thanks for the honesty. Because there's a reason the old hymn says prone to wander because we do. There's a lot of Christians in here that had to come to a crisis of belief when they finally figured out they became Christians not because mom and dad were. They finally got the reality that God doesn't have grandkids? Wow, I mean, it's me? And when the difficulties of life come, and if they haven't come, just, I'm sorry to tell you, they're coming. It's in those moments that we stand firmly on the gospel of Christ that we have been gossiping about because he is so good, even when things are so bad because he is so true and he is the way and the life and he is our hope so we want to see Orange Park change for the good it's probably not going to be changed for the good based on any decisions made Tuesday night at the town council meeting you want to see Clay County revived our county commissioners do not have that mandate you want to see the state of Florida something happen in our state I tend to think it's going to not happen out of Tallahassee unless it's out of one of our sister churches there. And don't get me started on D.C. But it ain't going to work because it never has. May we have the faithfulness of Paul to trust the faithfulness of God if we'd only trust him rather than our systems. May we be evangelistic but not in such a way that we're trying to sell a magazine subscription. And may we be disciple makers, but not sucking people into another class, but making disciples, one at a time, for the glory of God. And may we figure out what the next chapter of Acts is supposed to look like and live it out well. Father, as we close this service, we pray that you will be blessed by us that we will bless you in our actions, in our attitudes, in our words. 
As we sing this closing hymn to you today, we pray that it is not just a, a song to get us out of the room, but it is a declaration of who you are in us and that we worship you well through song, through deed, through actions, because, well, God, we just can't help it. We just can't help it. May the gospel be gossip upon our lips. That the only way in Scripture where gossip's allowed is when we talk about you. May we talk about you. May our actions match up to the talk we talk. And Lord, we want to see our lost friends, family members, and community neighbors saved. We want them to know you. We want people on the other side of the planet to surrender their lives to you. And we celebrate these stories we've already heard today. But Father, we want to live the full and abundant life right now too. And we know that in living that full and abundant life, we don't need an attractional church program with just the right music and message and decorations to make it happen. The attraction is you. You draw people to yourself. And sometimes, and I don't understand why we get the privilege, sometimes you use us along that journey to draw more people to you. So may we be faithful and may we be intentional and may we gossip well. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's